All right. Everybody's ready. I guess we'll begin with prayer. Reading from Psalm 67, verses 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would richly bless our church and the church around the world so that unbelievers would see your saving power and be drawn to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. I don't know. I'm starting up Sunday school without art sitting right here. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> I really depend on him sometimes. Um, so spiritual gifts. Uh, we've been going through a book by Tom Schreiner. Um, and this morning we're in chapter five, which is entitled Questions and Answers. Um, this is a 11 chapter book. Uh, last week we were going through chapters four and three, three and four, which were on truths about spiritual gifts. And this, this lesson is preparing us for next week, which will be on the gift of prophecy. So as a reminder of our author, uh, Tom Schreiner is an American New Testament scholar. He is the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He previously taught at Bethel Theological Seminary and Azusa Pacific University. Hopefully I'm saying that right. He, he is also co-chairman of the Christian Standard Bibles Translation Oversight Committee and is the New Testament editor of the ESV Study Bible. Schreiner has degrees from Western Oregon University, Western Seminary, and Fuller Theological Seminary. Schreiner has written commentaries on the books of R Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, and Jude. He, in 2014, he served as president of the Evangelical Theological Society from 2001 to 2015, Schreiner served as the pastor of preaching at Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and he currently serves there as an elder. So we've been, throughout this book, we've been working with four key texts. Um, the first that I'd like to review today is Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. It reads this way, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy 
in proportion to our faith. In, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The second text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. It reads like this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The third text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 27. It reads like this. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? We've also been working from Ephesians chapter 4, but we'll pick up that text a little later on in the lesson. So, the topic of spiritual gifts raises many questions. And in this brief chapter, Schreiner's goal is to answer six commonly asked questions about spiritual gifts. And I'm sure these are questions you might be asking yourself right now, given the lessons leading up to this point. So, first question, does every Christian have a spiritual gift. Second, how do we discover our spiritual gifts? Third, why does Paul say to desire greater gifts if the gifts we have don't signify either inferiority or superiority? Fourth, why should we seek gifts at all? since they are sovereignly given by God. Fifth, 
are the gifts supernatural or are they just natural talents we enjoy? And finally, are the gifts permanent possessions or can we exercise a gift that isn't normally ours? So we'll take them up one at a time. First question, does every Christian have a spiritual gift? Schreiner provides as his text for this one, the, the first one that we read, which was 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, I'm reading right here. So look for something in here that points us to whether or not uh, every Christian has a spiritual gift. It reads like this again. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There, and there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And it goes on. So what do you think from this text, whether or not each one of us is given at least one spiritual gift. Okay, go ahead. Um, I haven't dug into that. Um, are you willing to entertain ideas? Uh, so varieties of activities, maybe. Synonymous terms. Okay. Okay. Oh, take that answer. Um, so we have the, the key text right there was each is given the manifestation of the spirit, right? So there's some, some idea that there's some apportioning being done to each individual who, uh, in the body of Christ, right? So... Uh, Schreiner looks at it this way. So according to Schreiner, scripture is very clear on this matter. So that we can say with confidence that every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, that we have different gifts. That's the first quote up there, which implies that everyone has a gift. Ephesians 4, 7 is even clearer which reads, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The words each one of us demonstrate that each believer is gifted. It is hard to imagine a text being much clearer than what we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter says, just as each one has received a gift. And we see the same truth in the text we just read, which is 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 where Paul is clearly talking about spiritual gifts where he says a manifestation of the spirit is given to each person. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes little sense if only some have spiritual gifts, leaving no doubt that each person has at least one spiritual gift. So that's where he lands on this one. So he he says each person has at least one spiritual gift, but you know, he may have multiple um, but no man except for one, has all spiritual giftedness. So, second question that was posed to us is, 
how do we discover our spiritual gifts? So Schreiner says when he was younger, and I'm sure many of you will remember this, that discovering one's spiritual gifts was a subject of considerable discussion. And many churches and organizations gave, gave out tests and surveys so that members could discern their gifts. Such instruments aren't used as much anymore, and for good reason. But aside from a uh, personality test, do you, do you think, can you think of any other ways that you might uh, go about determining what your spiritual giftedness is? Would you depend on that more than your own self-assessment? Okay. Mike has a different answer. Okay. <laughs> we tend to have inflated opinions of ourselves. Yeah, that's true as well. Any other ideas? Go ahead. Okay, so here's a, a different idea, right? So even if you're not naturally gifted in a certain area, if a need presents itself and you feel like you're available and you serve in that capacity, you might find that you're gifted in an area that you're not spiritually gifted in an area that you're not naturally gifted, right? Right, so this is, this is where Schreiner lands on this question as well. Um, the way to figure out what, how your giftedness or what your giftedness is is to actually serve in the body, right? So, right, right, so you can, yeah, you can look at the, uh, what comes out of your service in a certain area. So, Schreiner says this, um, <clears throat> he says that such an abstract way of discovering our gifts, such as in a spiritual gift test, is co actually contrary to the spirit of the New Testament, where we are summoned to give ourselves to other believers in the congregation. He puts it this way, we will discover our gift when we pour ourselves into the lives of other believers. When we get involved in the life of the body, we are to be zealous for spiritual gifts. But Paul's point isn't that we are to conduct an inventory of our own giftedness. This goes to what Mike was saying. Gifts are not granted for our own spiritual growth, but for the growth of others, for the strengthening of fellow believers. Some spiritual gift inventories give the impression that you can discover your spiritual gift in the privacy of your room, apart from vital involvement in the body of Christ. We can also say that in some respects, it isn't crucial that you recognize your own gift. Some worry ex excessively about what their gift is, and as a result, they are distracted from actually doing ministry. If you are involved in a church, if you are serving other believers, then you are exercising your gifts, even if you don't know what they are. And, the most import and that is the most important thing of all. So, third question. Why does Paul say to desire greater gifts if the gifts we have don't signify either inferiority or superiority? So, reading again from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 27. And you can see the underlined portion at the bottom there. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? So, and some translations answer this question as they go. They go, are all apostles? You know, of course not, or no, you know, obviously. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. So, we should stop and observe that Paul exhorts believers to seek greater gifts. This seems strange since he emphasized earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that someone's gift doesn't make them inferior or superior. But if some gifts are greater than others, then isn't it the case that those who have the greater gifts are better than those with lesser gifts? Or to put it another way, if some gifts are greater, then are those with lesser gifts inferior? So, so Schreiner identifies that as one possible way of dealing of dealing with the uh, this problem, um, but he he feels like it is not fully dealing with the issue because there's still this hierarchy present, even if you're even if you're looking to uh, the the corporate nature of how spiritual gifts are exercised or are fulfilled in the body. Like your second answer. Um, let's look at. So it's interesting here that I saw, I, I'm seeing also what uh, Art said here, that first there's, let's see, see how it goes, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, like there's a certain hierarchy here, right? So so if you're reading it like, well, all should earnestly desire higher gifts, then you would think, well, all should desire first to be apostles then, right? Um, okay, but yeah, that's definitely not what where we want to go with this, but... Um, so for more clarification, I, so um, we'll, go, we'll go on to chapter 14, like Dennis was suggesting. So we have reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you, to, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Why? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So again, why does Paul say to desire greater gifts if the gifts that we have don't signify either inferiority or superiority? So this is part of what Art was saying right here. So that the church may be built up. Right? So some gifts are greater in the sense that they build up the church more. Right? Not that there's something inherently better about them apart from that, though. So let's look at what Schreiner has to say about this topic. So Schreiner says we have to pay close attention to what Paul has in mind in saying that we should, or that we should desire greater gifts. We see in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 5, that some gifts are greater than others because some gifts are more edifying to the church. Paul isn't contradicting what he said earlier about people being superior or inferior because he is speaking about two different things. 
when he says that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, he isn't saying that the one who prophesies is a better person, nor is he more spiritual or more godly than the one who speaks in tongues. He's simply saying that the gift of prophecy is more useful to the church, at least where Shriner is going with this, uh, than tongues because more people are edified through the use of that gift. So how does that settle with you, you know, given the different opinions that we had? So <clears throat> he's looking specifically at the usefulness to the church. Um, so what question are we on fourth question now? Um, why should we get seek gifts at all? This is a good question for reformed churches, right? Why should we seek gifts at all since they are sovereignly given by God? We saw earlier that the gifts one has are sovereignly given by God himself. Any question? A little more? What do you mean by that? Well, we had an exhortation just a moment ago to pursue greater gifts, right? So why should we be pursuing gifts at all? Um, so I would, I would say that goes, you know, both corporately and individually. Right. I mean, yeah. Right, and, and that's that's a corporate function, recognizing gifts and encouraging. Okay, but so this is clearly something we ought to pursue. But, okay, so the question is, why, right? So in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 9, the gifts believers of believers stem from the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that the Spirit distributes gifts to each person as he wills in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and that God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted in 1 Corinthians 12.18. He declares in 1 Corinthians 12.28 that God has appointed whether one is an apostle, a prophet, or a teacher. So there is no doubt then that God sovereignly assigns the gifts that we possess. Right. So the fourth question, again, why should we seek gifts at all if they are sovereignly given? Okay. Right. So it's a similar question to why do we evangelize? Right. Right. Waiting for God to act. Um, so Schreiner says the answer to this question is one of the most important themes in Scripture. Many go astray because of a wrong understanding of the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings. We are reminded that our spiritual gifts are the result of God's grace and sovereignty. We deserve no credit or glory for the gifts that we have. They are truly gifts, so no boasting is permissible. At the same time, the scriptures never apply the truth about God's sovereignty in such a way as to cancel out human responsibility. Right, so the scripture never says anything like, God has willed such and such to happen, so you don't need a little more difficult than previous questions. Are spiritual gifts supernatural 
or natural. I'll leave that up to you to define. Um, so what are some different perspectives that you've heard on this topic? Or maybe what do these words mean to you? And maybe, maybe, maybe you could define what the word means and then tell me whether or not you think or, or what, if they're good categories or not. Well, God has providence over everything, right? So everything that happens is in accordance with a certain plan. So in that sense, is everything supernatural? Right? So are, gifts, are, are spiritual gifts supernatural because everything is supernatural? Or is, okay, so supernatural points to something beyond ourselves? Okay. Right, yeah, it's, I, I'm in agreement with you guys that it's, these categories themselves are, are difficult. Um, so are, are they helpful? I don't know. Uh, having come from a John Piper church, um, he would have, there would have been no hesitation on this one. He would have said these are, all spiritual gifts are supernatural, right? Um, they, right? spiritual gifts are God uh, wielding us like a tool, right? Uh, it's in that sort of category. Uh, there's no, the natural side of this isn't even part of the conversation, but, but uh Clearly, Schreiner is going in a different direction, so let's let's walk walk along this path with him and see where he goes. So, Schreiner says, it is evident that some gifts are more overtly miraculous than others. The Corinthians became entranced with the gift of tongues, not the gift of helps. Some gifts, such as tongues, in interpretation of tongues, healing, miracles, and prophecy are striking manifestations of God's presence in a community. The Corinthians were entranced with the gift of tongues, and we are not surprised, for the gift was a wonderful and astonishing indication of God's presence among his people. Gifts such as teaching, helps, leading, giving, mercy, exhortation, are not as remarkable to the human eye. Though they are still supernatural in the sense that they are animated by the Holy Spirit. And in any good effect is also, or any good effect is also from the Holy Spirit. It seems likely that some of the latter gifts are stitched into one's personality in a way that gifts like tongues and miracles are not. But the supernatural character of the gift is not thereby denied. For even in this case, the gift comes from God, and the good that results from the exercise of the gift comes from the Holy Spirit, not our native talent. So how does this idea fit with you? Ready? The idea that some gifts are stitched into our personality. Right. The, the gift of, or the, the categories of natural and supernatural were difficult for me. So let's, let's look here at, at the, this is Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 3. Maybe this might help a little bit. Ready? So um, it reads like this. And the first question I'm going to ask is, what is this paragraph about? So get prepared to answer that question. God, in his ordinary providence, maketh use of means 
yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. What is, what is this paragraph talking about? Yeah, so, yet, so he, he maketh use of means, yet is free to work without them, above them, and against them at his pleasure. God is sovereign, okay? Okay? Right. So, this, this is definitely pointing to God's sovereignty, right? We have, so first and foremost, this paragraph is asserting that God is above and independent of the means that he uses, right? So like we learned in when we were going through frame, God is not limited in any way by any part of his creation. That's kind of what this is pointing to here. Uh, this, this paragraph is making a st distinction between what we would call like ordinary providence and God's special acts of providence. Uh, and the special acts are when God is working without, above, or against his ordinary means. So we look at the words here. What do you think? Can you, maybe you can give me a, a Bible example of when God works without his ordinary means. Talking donkeys? It depends on what miracle you're talking about. Right? Right. That's not how water normally works. Or gravity. That's not how gravity normally works. Okay. So without without means might be God speaking creation into existence. Right? saying that something is that is not, right, and by the power of his word. So Jesus calming the, the waves, right? This is without means. So what about above? Bible, when God works above ordinary means. Maybe you can give an example from your life. Salvation? Okay, so we, we normally differentiate between an outward call and an effectual call, right? The outward call goes out to all, right? But working above that means, right, is the uh, is the effectual call, which results in a generation regeneration, right? So that's a good example. Or if um, we look at uh, miraculous healing, for example, right? So sometimes people are healed by doctors who perform surgeries that wouldn't normally result in a person getting better, let's say, right? And if you're pointing to, so that, that might, if, you, if you're identifying that as something miraculous, right, something, uh, a special act of providence, that would be God using a person to accomplish something beyond what that person could normally do, right? And... What about against means? Can you think of an example from the Bible? <laughs> okay, so what we're looking for here is there's a way that the world normally works, and God is going to act contrary to that. That's a good example, right? 
the sun doesn't normally stand still in the sky. Okay? Another example, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Burning furnaces don't normally preserve people who are inside of them. So, and the last point to make here is at his pleasure. What is the at his pleasure, those three words, what do you think they're intended to communicate about God's special acts of providence? God's freedom, however he chooses, right? Well, with regard to um, miraculous uh, gifts of healing or whatever, tongues or whatever, think about it in these terms. What does it say about, at, what does at his pleasure say about that, right? Man cannot command a special act of God's providence, right? Say it again. Yeah, yeah. God acts in accordance with his will. So, so in the context of spiritual gifts, getting back to that, we might look at them as special acts of God's providence. Maybe helpful categories here. Some of them... Some of these special acts working without our natural abilities. Some of them working above our natural abilities. Some of them working against our natural abilities, right? But they're all in the category of special act, though. I don't know. Is this helpful? Go ahead. Definition of miraculous two special acts of providence that um, are revelatory. Okay. So... Last question, are the gifts permanent possessions or can we exercise a gift that isn't normally ours? Paul doesn't specifically answer this question, so we must contend ourselves or content ourselves with reading the clues from his writings. So going back to Ephesians or going into Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse nine, it reads like this. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up, or for building up the body of Christ. So are there any clues in this text referring to the spiritual gifts um, with regard to whether or not they are permanent possessions or not? Permanent possessions of the individuals. Did, did Paul lose his, yeah, did Paul lose his apostleship? <laughs> So Shriner's looking at the phraseology. Notice that the gifts here are, oops, the gifts are in reference to people, right? 
the, the people who have the gift, not the gift itself. Right. So some gifts here are are referencing the individual, right? So the idea they were talking about a prophet or a teacher or an evangelist or an apostle um, is a clue that this person, that is who they are, right? It's not something that they uh, would gain or lose. Okay. Yes, these are spiritual gifts, right? Amongst the body of believers. So, this is the way that Schreiner answers it. Maybe you can think about if you agree with this. Um, Schreiner says, since Paul refers to prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, it seems fair to infer that the gifts of prophecy, evangelism, and teaching were a regular feature in the life of some individuals. On the other hand, so referring to the other gifts, Paul doesn't refer to anyone as a healer or a miracle worker or an interpreter of tongues. He only refers to the gift itself. It doesn't follow from this that no one regularly exercises gifts like tongues or healings, but we can't rule out the idea that someone might speak in tongues or do a miracle only once or on rare occasions. But if that is the case, then they don't really have the gift of tongues. They just speak in tongues occasionally. These are the categories he's starting to lay out. Do you think that that's something that can be inferred from lists like this? That's a difficult question. Um, because I would say you're gifted for a reason, um, but if you've disqualified yourself, because if I say yes to that, then that means that you're gifted in a way that's not edifying the church, right? Um, it's, I, I think it's difficult. I, I don't know exactly know how to answer those type of questions. I know, I mean, because you might be gifted in teaching, but, but your theology is not in alignment with the church. So you should not be filling an office of teaching if you're in that situation. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you're not gifted, though. Um, but that means that, yeah. I, I, and, and that way of looking at it seems to line up with what Blake was saying earlier as well, that you, know, you, you can identify supernatural gifts by their being them being exercised in the church. Okay, so let's proceed forward here. Let's see. Let's keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4. Got about five minutes left. Um, so where we left off, we have, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let's bring all this together by looking at chapter 26, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession. It reads this way. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion with each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good both in the inward and outward man. Okay, so starting at the beginning, right there, saints, okay? All right, so it, we have a community separated from the world in union with Christ, right? So from this paragraph, what are some, we have the language right here, union, united to Jesus Christ, right? So what are some elements of this union with Christ? Uh, the word saint is, is, it implies the setting apart, right? Set apart from the world into union with Christ. Right, right. Okay. So what are the elements that we, um, that are part of this union with Christ? Fellowship? Fellowship in what? Okay. All these things. We have, we have graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, right? It's a organic corporate union. Corporate means bodily, like Paul keeps using this body language, right? Where Christ is the head, right? We have fellowship in graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, right? So how do we experience union with Christ in his sufferings and death in this world? How is his sufferings and death something that we are united to as saints? Okay, so death to sin, alive to what? Christ. Okay. So what does his resurrection mean for us? Right? What is this life? Okay. So part of this resurrection concept here is that in Christ, right, in union with Christ, we have been given the very life that we need to live unto God, right? That's how we're able to live a life that is pleasing to him. That's how we partake of his resurrection now, right? So here's, now I'm going to connect these ideas here. United to one another in love and united to Jesus, right? How does union with Christ facilitate our love that we have with one another? So 
Good. So real quick, like to point us in the direction I want to go in the last minute here. So what what does God's law require of us? Perfect obedience. Okay. In what in what manner? Love one another. Love God, right? So Mark 12, 28 to 31, this is the Shema. Let me read it real quick. It says, uh, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So does communion with Christ bring estrangement from or reconciliation to the law? This law that requires love of God and love of neighbor. Reconciliation, right? So union with Christ is being conformed to his image. Right? It is a reconciliation with the demand of moral perfection, right? That God's holy nature requires of us as image bearers, right? So, in the context of our spiritual gifts, as we exercise our spiritual gifts corporately, we all share in this blessing of spiritual reconciliation, okay? Hopefully, that will head us off on the right path as we go into the Half, second half of this book here as we get into the gift of prophecy next week with Ryan. Thank you all.